Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, and the title of the sermon is Jesus Meets a Widow. Hear now the word of the Lord. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow, and with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. This word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. An excerpt from Ben Witherington's Encounters with Jesus. I am still dumbfounded by that day. I had never seen anything like that in my many years before, and nothing since then either. I guess that's the very nature of a miracle. It's rare, rare, and precious. Unlooked for, unexpected, but also undeniable. My son had been dead for more than a day, and then the oddest thing ever happened. One day, Jesus met a widow. This morning, as we look at this meeting between Jesus and this widow, I want to consider three things about Jesus. And those three things will serve conveniently as our outline this morning. First, I want to consider what Jesus saw. Second, I want to consider what Jesus felt. And third, I want to consider what Jesus did. So what Jesus saw, what he felt, and what he did. That's our outline this morning. Let's start with what Jesus saw. This text is an odd text in many ways as we've looked at this series of meetings with Jesus because this text breaks the pattern. The pattern we've seen over and over again is this. Someone has a crisis in their life. Because of that crisis, they hear about Jesus. They're led to seek out Jesus. They go and find Jesus to meet him. When they meet him, they plead with him and beg him to intervene in their situation, thereby demonstrating their faith in him at the same time and then Jesus responds by healing or by fixing the situation, resolving the crisis. But that pattern is broken in this text. Now, I grant you, certainly we have a person in crisis, right? This woman is in crisis. As Mitch mentioned, she is a woman who has no husband. Her husband died. She has no son. And in this time and in this place and in this world that we're speaking about, to be without son or husband was to be poor was to be economically vulnerable, and that's where she is. She is a widow in a world where it was harsh to be a widow. So she was indeed in crisis. But then the whole pattern is entirely broken. Because in this case, she does not seek out Jesus at all. She doesn't even know Jesus is here. She doesn't ask Jesus for anything. She doesn't plead with Him. She doesn't demonstrate any faith in Him at all. That's not what triggers Jesus' response here. His triggering of his response is entirely what he saw. That's what the Scripture says. It's about what he saw. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her. 
When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. What exactly did Jesus see? He saw her. He saw her in her vulnerability. He understood her situation. He understood her crisis. He understood her pain and her suffering. He saw her. And Jesus knew what that meant. She was not invisible to him. He saw her. He saw her suffering. And that's a very important point for us to think about and ponder. Because when you are encountering suffering, you really have two options. You can look at it, you can see it, or you can turn away from it. You can see it, or you can turn away. And all of us know which of those two is the easier option, the more convenient option, the less challenging option, the path of least resistance is always simply not to see it. And we do a lot of not seeing in our lives, don't we? Sometimes we do that overtly and directly, right? We legitimately turn away from suffering. We see someone and we just don't want to look at it and we turn away. We do it overtly. We do it directly. We kind of close our eyes in it as if to think if we close our eyes and we don't see it, it will go away. But then other times we do it covertly or indirectly. Right? We do it by the choices we make in our lives. We insulate ourselves or we isolate ourselves from having to encounter suffering. It's part of what we do. I do it. I'm not pointing the finger at you. The choices I've made about how to live my life, where to live my life. Particularly here in a wealthy country, in America, you can do that. You can isolate yourself. You can live your life so as not to encounter suffering, so you don't have to see it. And if you don't have to see it, you can think it's not there. When it comes to suffering, you can look at it, or you can turn it away. You can turn away from it. But in this text, Jesus doesn't turn away from it. He looks right into it. He could have passed right by all of this. No one was asking him to do anything. No one was begging him. No one was demonstrating praise to him. He could have walked by. He could have turned away, but he didn't. He looked right at it, but the Lord saw her. And I think therein we find a lesson for ourselves this morning, a challenge for ourselves about the importance of seeing suffering, of looking at it and not turning away, of seeing with the eyes of Jesus, of being like Jesus, of having that vision, of being able to resist our temptation overtly or covertly, directly, indirectly, to turn away from suffering. Jesus saw it. He saw her. And I think this text challenges us to see suffering. To see suffering in the big sense of suffering. And we know what those things are, right? The big things. But to also see it in the small things. And often it's a lot harder to see the small things. We're kind of good at seeing the big things, right? Those are what make the news when we hear about a mass shooting or we hear about a tragedy or a hurricane or some places hit by an earthquake. 
there's a massive response, right? And we give money and perhaps we send aid in a variety of ways, the things that make the news, but often the small things we miss. This was one woman in one place suffering, and Jesus saw her. Rich Stearns, in his book, There's a Hole in Your Gospel, he has a chapter in that book called 100 Crashing Jetliners. And his point is this, if a hundred planes crashed tomorrow, something would happen, right? It would make the news, obviously. We would have commissions and there would be a, a, a united national effort to do something about it because all those people died in one day. And his point in the chapter is simply this, that that happens every day from preventable diseases around the world and we just don't see it because it's not that big thing. But Jesus saw this one person. And as Christians, we need to learn to see with the eyes of Jesus, to see the one person suffering, because the first step to alleviating suffering in this world is to see it, is to look at it and not turn away. The Lord saw her. That's what Jesus saw. Point number two, what Jesus felt what he felt. And the text makes this abundantly clear. There's no doubt about it. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her. The NIV puts it this way, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. Jesus felt compassion. When he saw her, he felt compassion. And that word compassion that's translated there as compassion, it is a deep, emotional, visceral response. It's a strong word. Luke rarely uses the word. He uses it only in two other places in his gospel. The parable of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the prodigal son. Both of which ooze out with compassion. Jesus felt deep compassion and it was that compassion that served to trigger what he did next. As I've mentioned so often in these stories, it is because someone comes to him and pleads with him, and they demonstrate their faith, and Jesus says, How great is your faith! I will give you what you want. But here there is no exercise of that. The sole cause of all of this is the compassion of our Lord. Jesus was moved by what he saw. In Reformed theology, we have this doctrine. It's the doctrine of divine impassibility. It sounds like a big idea, but it's really simply this. It's the idea that God is sovereign, that he has an immutable, unchangeable plan, that that plan isn't moved by some type of whim or emotion, or, or kind of God just kind of has a mood and changes His mind. It's a way of distinguishing the one true God from the pagan gods who were so often moved by emotion or a whim, right? Think of Zeus. Who would want Zeus as their God? He was going all over the place, where right? He's always affected by passions. Our God is not like that. But that doctrine should not be mistaken, as it often is mistaken or misunderstood, as saying God has no emotions. Because here we see it in the Scripture. God was moved. Moved by compassion. And because 
that wasn't a whim type situation because we know about God's nature, right? He is a God who is, there is divine impassibility. God doesn't move on whims. It wasn't like he walked in that one day and said, oh gee, that woman's suffering. I guess I'll do something about it. Like he was moved in the moment, like we are moved in a moment. Rather, what we see here is a reflection of the very immutable character of God. God isn't compassionate in a moment. He's compassionate in His nature all the time. It's who He is. And we're allowed to see it here in this time, in this moment, that God by very nature is a compassionate God. And the imperative for us is to be like our God. We are His image bearers called to reflect His image. And part of His image is to be compassionate. Sometimes, I think we forget that. Sometimes, I think we lose that in our vision and in our mission. People always ask me that about, you know, what, what's, your, what's your vision for the church? And most of the time I would say this, look, it's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go there, therefore, <coughs> excuse me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Right? That's the Great Commission. That's Jesus' vision for the church. There it is. That's my vision. That's the vision for RCRC. We didn't have to even pay a consultant to tell us that. I just saved you all some money. I'm not a big fan of consultants. My favorite consultant joke is this. A consultant is someone who asks you to borrow your watch, tells you what time it is, and then charges you for it. That's kind of it. You'll get that later. But that's what I would say, that that is the vision for the church, the Great Commission. Of course it is. But then I, I, I realized as I encountered this text that that's not all of it. It's not wrong, it's not incorrect, it's just incomplete and unsatisfactory in the sense that it's not the fullness of what Christ has called us to. Our vision must be greater than that because the Lord's vision is greater than that. I came across a book recently by Paul Borthwick. The book is entitled, Great Commission, Great Compassion, Following Jesus and Loving the World. Now, you all know what the Great Commission is, but what's this great compassion stuff? Is this some product of some bleeding heart liberal theologians' ideas? No. It came from the same Lord who gave us the Great Commission. I want to read it to you this morning. They're going to put it up on the screen so you can read along with me in your mind. Maybe. To die. We can do it without it. We knew it was going to be the end. Was when we is the bulb dead? We don't need to put it up there. It's all right. The great compassion is found in Matthew twenty-five, verses thirty-one through forty-six. 
Just listen to these words of our Lord. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep at His right hand and the goats at His left. Then the King will say to those at His right hand, Come, you that are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And here it is. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And then Jesus says this, Then he will also say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, Depart from me in the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's the great compassion. And that should inspire us. And it should scare us. Right? That's a scary passage to read. That's what Jesus tells us, just as much as the Great Commission. We are to teach, we are to preach, we are to baptize, but we are also commissioned to be compassionate to the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the prisoner. Why? Because our God is a God of compassion. That's who He is. And we see it right here in this text. Because what Jesus felt when he saw her was compassion. Third and finally this morning, what Jesus did. What Jesus did. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, rise. Jesus saw the suffering. He felt compassion for what He saw, the suffering of this woman. And then He took the third step and He did something about it. Something that would have rendered a Jew unclean in this world. He went and touched that, that stretcher on which the dead man was. He went and touched her and made him, would have made himself unclean. And then He raised her son from the dead, alleviating her suffering. 
And there's so much in this passage about who Christ is. Some of it is about his Messiahship. This is the new Elisha and the new Elijah, both of whom raised or revived a son of a widow. It's about Jesus' resurrection power, his Easter morning power, his last day power, by which he has command over the dead. But it also teaches us that divine compassion is active. It does something. It moves, right? Our whole salvation is based on this principle. For God so loved the world, He gave. God's compassion leads to doing, right? That's the three-part process that I've laid out in this sermon. In order to alleviate suffering, you need to see it. You need to feel compassion about what you see. And then thirdly, you need to do something about it. And as everyone in this room knows, it's that last piece, right? The third part, that's the hard part. Looking at it, okay, we can do that. Feeling compassion, okay, we can do that. I can change my Facebook profile to support the cause of the month. But to do something about it? To really do something. That's hard. I mean, if you think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite who walked by, they saw the person suffering. Maybe they even felt compassion. They just didn't do anything about it. And the whole point of the parable is you've got to do something. Jesus, His compassion, He did something. But doing is the hardest part. Paul Borthwick, in that book, The Great Commission and the Great Compassion, talks about why is it that we don't do something about it. And he gives a bunch of reasons. One of the reasons is guilt, right? We see it, we, we feel bad about it, we kind of feel guilty that we're not doing anything, and our guilt doesn't lead us to do something, it leads us to freeze or to not do something or to find some excuse about not doing something. Another reason we don't do anything about it is, is deflection, right? We say, well, somebody else should be doing this. Sometimes I have people come to me and say, you know, really, we should be doing something about this. Well, good idea. Why don't you do something about it? But the idea is, well, the church should be doing something about it. Who do you think the church is? Or we say the government should do something about it. Or we say the rich people should do something about it. We deflect it. Sometimes we try to deny it, that it doesn't exist, or to, or to explain it away in some way, to rationalize it. I feel these, these tensions too, right? I think a lot about this and what our church should be doing, how we should be doing it. And as Borthwick writes in his book, you know, there, there's these books out there about bad charity. You can do it wrong, so maybe we shouldn't do it, right? Book, there's books like uh, When Helping Hurts or Toxic Charity. I don't want to demean people. I don't want to be the white savior kind of person, right? I want to do all these things that, so you, kind of, you can rationalize and then you end up doing nothing because of that. Or simply ignorance, right? I don't know how. How do I do anything about this? There are plenty of reasons to do nothing. But Jesus wants us to do something. Right? We can't do everything. We're not going to solve all the world's problems, particularly a little church like ours. But we can do something. All right, Pastor Boy, 
What can we do? Well, let me give you a few ideas of things you could do, concrete things we can do. You can get involved in your church. We have ministries that do these very things that we just read about from the Great Compassion, that do something. And sometimes it's easier to do it together. If you want to be a part of those ministries, come see me. Come see a deacon. They're volunteers. We take all comers. Get involved. A second thing you can do is to start a ministry, something you care about deeply. We saw this play out in our church just recently, keeping our promise. What happened? People saw something, they felt compassion over it, and they did something about it. You can do that. It will help you. A third thing you can do is consider being a deacon in our church. We are in this cycle of nominations to council. We need deacons. We need deacons with hearts of compassion. We need deacons who can see suffering and do something about it. That is the entire job of a deacon. Theirs is to fulfill the great compassion. Why not be a part of that? A fourth thing you can do is read a book. Read a book like The Great Compassion, and The Great Commission and The Great Compassion, or Richard Stern's book, There's a Hole in Your Gospel. And if you need more ideas, I'm going to send you a whole bunch tomorrow. I really am. Because in Borthwick's book, in the back, he has a little appendix. Not a little, a big appendix. An appendix of 100 things. 100 ideas for Great Commission, Great Compassion, outreach. Not, some of them are for Great Commission, not Great Compassion, but there's at least 50 in there about this whole idea. And some of them are corny, some of them are stupid, but a lot of them are really good. And what if we just took one of those and we did something about it? So tomorrow, in your inbox, you will get those. I got permission from the author to share those with you. And keep it for next week because we're going to need the other half next week. But just think about it. Look at them. Pick one and just do it because it matters. It matters not only for those who suffer, but it matters to our God. It matters to Jesus because He is compassionate. He sets a pattern for us in this text. He calls us to follow it. He wants us to learn to see, to look at, not look away from suffering. He wants us to learn to feel, to feel compassion for those who suffer. And then He wants us to learn to do to do something about it as a church, as Christians. See, feel, do. Eyes, heart, hands. It's that simple. Don't you want to be a part of Jesus' vision for this world? He came to alleviate suffering and to bring us salvation. And He calls us, His church, to follow Him to see, feel, and do. Let's pray.